Church, Dr. Brian Chappell. Brian is currently serving as the Chancellor of Covenant Theological Seminary, our denomination's seminary in St. Louis. Brian, it is great to have you back with us. We look forward to the Lord speaking to us through you this morning. Let me ask that you would look in your Bibles this morning at Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20. Great to be with you at an Advent time and with a new pastor and new beginnings in so many ways. It's a great blessing to be with you. As you get to Numbers 20, you'll see that there is a sad but important note just in the very first verse. The verse identifies that this is the time that Miriam died. Do you remember who Miriam was? Miriam was the sister of Moses. Yeah, sister of Moses. So what is being indicated is this. The generation that came out of Egypt is now past. They've had their 40 years of wandering in the desert. And now the new generation is poised in the desert near the Jordan, ready to go into the promised land. It's a time of a new generation, new start, new opportunity. And this is how Moses unfolds the story to us. Numbers 20, we'll read verses 1 through 13. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, which means quarreling, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them, He showed himself holy. 
Let's stand and sing together before we study this portion of God's word. Number 229, Gentle Mary laid her child. A generational divide. It's probably here. I think I can even demonstrate it to you. How would you fill in this blank? All I want for Christmas is my... Now, for those of you who know how to fill in the blank, I have to tell you that was first made popular in 1944. And there's another group of people in this room that we might fill in the blank a different way. If you're um, a fan of Mariah Carey or Justin Bieber, all I want for Christmas is... See? (laughs) What do you want for Christmas? Actually, I saw a survey recently that said uh, 48% of all kids in America want an iPad for Christmas. So, uh, grandparents, if you're late in your shopping... um, Now, I do have to tell you, Apple distributed the survey. No. No, No, I just made that up. Um, But I do have it on good authority that that 98% of all American families want to know what in the world does Dad want for Christmas. What does the church want? Um, When I was asked to come at this time, I was asked to preach on shepherding. And when I came today and saw the live nativity out there, I thought, oh, that's why they want to shepherd. No, that wasn't really the reason. I I said, um, why shepherding? Because we're thinking about what it means to care for God's people. What does it mean for leaders to shepherd God's people in the way the scriptures say? And I kind of said, well, actually, you know, it's Christmas season. Don't you want a Christmas sermon? Well, we actually want to talk about shepherding. Which says to me that what the church wants is shepherds who are under shepherds of the great shepherd. That there's the understanding, whether it be pastor or elders or deacons or Sunday school teachers or parents, there is the profound understanding that what God's people need in care is the caring of the Lord Jesus through those that he puts in responsibility in his church. We want shepherds. But what would that look like? I'm helped by remembering that in the book of Hebrews, we are told that Jesus, the great shepherd, is the greater Moses. Whatever that shepherding looks like, we can gain hits from looking at the life of Moses. And here, of course, is a very key chapter to do it. Now, the problem, of course, you recognize is by the time we get to the end of the passage, there's something really wrong with Moses, though it's a little hard to figure out what it is. But something's wrong. It's actually much easier to see what's wrong with the people, isn't it? I mean, after all, here they are ready to fulfill the covenant promises of God by going in to take the promised land as God has designed for them to do, and suddenly they are complaining again. And in that Yogi Berra, it's deja vu all over again, you know, it's, it's exactly the experience of their parents 40 years previously. I mean, even some of the same words are used. It would have been better for us to have stayed in Egypt. 
It would have been better for us never to have come to this place where we're going to die because there isn't water and there's not something for pomegranates and figs and, and, and we're just going to die here. Moses, why'd you do this to us? It's, it's a sign of great faithlessness and fear and anger and wrong reaction to it all. It's really easy to see what the people do wrong. It's even easy to see what Moses does right. I mean, that's pretty plain. If you look at verse 6, after the concerns of the people being expressed, we read in verse 6, Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The people are grumbling, and Moses is humbling himself before the Lord, asking that the Lord would favor the people who are upset and angry and fearful. What we understand is that Moses is becoming an intercessor for the people. Before they have done what is right, before they've straightened up, before they are on the path that God wants them to be, Moses is on his face before the God of glory saying, Lord, help them. Be their God. Help them to see. Give them what's needed. And intuitively, we know this is what we expect of our leaders if they are to lead as good shepherds. We couldn't help but, but feel it this week, whether Republican or Democrat. When our president stood and after Sandy Hook Elementary School's tragedy, simply prayed publicly, Lord, Bind up their wounds. We know that shepherding means interceding for people in their pain, in their hurt. And we want people who will do that. It's even harder to recognize how important it is to be that first intercessor that Moses is when you recognize the context in which his intercession comes. If you'll back up to verse 2 of chapter 20, you'll read these words toward the end of verse 2. And the people assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. Verse 3, the people quarreled with Moses. Verse 4, they said, why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness? Verse 5, and why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is your fault. Leaders know what this sounds like. And you cannot be a shepherd of God's people without feeling this. That you have sacrificed, you have given, you have stretched every effort and resource of your own to try to help people, and instead they attack you. It may sound something unusual, but it is just par for the course. Even in the church of God, to to know criticism and ridicule and betrayal is just what leaders face. And for Moses to be on his face interceding for the people means that somewhere deep in his heart he has been able to find forgiveness as the path for service. And what we understand intuitively as God's people is you cannot lead if you cannot forgive. Because the grace of God that we so need, if it's not evident in you, even dealing with people who have dealt unkindly toward you, if forgiveness is not in you, you can't lead me in the grace of God. You must be a first forgiver 
to be an under-shepherd of the great shepherd. Again, I don't know if you all were watching the same station I was this morning, but as, as the news commentators were saying that in Newtown this would be the, the first Sunday after the tragedy, a commentator was so bold to ask, to ask this, do you think the ministers in the churches will talk about forgiveness? And one of the responding commentators simply said, what else could you talk about? I'm not talking about pardon or making excuses. But all of us as believers recognize that bitterness is the acid that eats its own container. That if you cannot find the way out of the darkness of unforgiveness, you are locked into that same destitution of the person who committed the crime. That, that to simply be unable to forgive, to find the, the freedom of what forgiveness is, which, which is exactly what the word means, to be for grace. To not say it's excusable. To not say there would be no consequences. But to say, I want for the glory of heaven and the sake of Jesus Christ, for the mercy of God to be made evident and plain through this situation, even through the attitudes of people who've been desperately hurt. That, that God's people... Their leaders, whether it be a pastor or an elder, whether it be a Sunday school teacher or a parent, if if you can't find a path to forgiveness, people cannot find Christ through you. And therefore, they cannot find the freedom of forgiveness and the grace and mercy of God that they themselves need. Moses is teaching us that being a shepherd means being a first intercessor. It also means being a first forgiver when it is so very hard. We don't just have to think about the tragedies. I mean... Think of what it means to be serving in the church and learning forgiveness. When, when you've been a Sunday school teacher, you know, and, and you've had this demonic little child for the last eight weeks in your class, you know. And on the ninth week, you know, the, the, the mother comes to your class and says, you know, Johnny really used to like Sunday school before you were the teacher. And you're... And you went to strangle, not the child now, but the parent, you know. <laughs> but can you forgive and, and fall on your face and say, Lord, they don't understand. They need your grace. Please, Lord, come. Help them. Moses is a first intercessor. He's a first forgiver. One other thing. He's willing to risk for the sake of these people. Verse Ten, remember? Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Well, that's not very politic. And when you've got a few million people mad at you, it's not very safe. And yet what Moses is willing to do is say the truth. God has called you to this mission. God has called you to this purpose. And now, for you to back up and complain and say, we don't go forward lest God provide for us in a different way, is actually to be a rebel. You must recognize that, that Moses has three voices that he can listen to in this moment. He can listen to the external voice of the people who are mad and upset. He can listen to his internal voice, which was to just kind of get back at him. Or he can listen to the voice of God and proclaim what it is. 
And the shepherds of God's people are those who listen to the voice of God. And even at great risk to themselves, because they recognize they must at times say things that people do not want to hear. But faithfulness for the word of God requires that they say it, that they will say what God says to say. And taking that risk is not only the mark of a shepherd somewhere, somewhere beyond our own pain. It is what we as God's people deeply desire to see in the under-shepherds. Will you take a risk of my disapproval to actually believe and say what God approves you saying? I take the risk of myself for your sake. For in doing so, I am an under-shepherd of the great shepherd who gave his all for my sake. Moses does so many good things. He is a, a first intercessor, a first forgiver, a first risker, all for the sake of people who don't deserve it at all. So what does he do that's so wrong when so much good leadership and shepherding is here before us? To to figure that out, you have to look at the words carefully. If you will, look at verse 8, because that has the specific instruction of God. God says to Moses in verse 8, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. Now, did you hear the instruction? You speak to the rock and tell it to yield its water. What does Moses actually do? Verse 10. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of the rock? Now, hear it carefully. God said to Moses, You take the staff of my authority, you take the staff, and you speak to the rock. To whom did Moses speak? To the people. And he said words that God had never told him to say. Now, we'll advance in this in a moment, but for the moment, recognize this. What Moses has done is he has listened to the internal voice and not the divine voice. And he has begun to speak what is in his heart rather than what is in God's mouth. And as a consequence, this Moses, the very one who was the first in Scripture to define for us what a prophet is, one who would be faithful to the Word of God, this same Moses becomes a prophet of his own words. He has substitute words and therefore becomes a prophet of himself. It gets worse. Verse 11. And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff... Twice. Now, what did God tell Moses to do to the rock? He was to what? Speak to the rock. Instead, he strikes the rock twice with the staff. Now, somewhere in your Sunday school background, you are remembering right now, wasn't, wasn't there a time when Moses was supposed to strike the rock? Right? You're thinking that, right? Somewhere in the Bible, there was a time when Moses was supposed to... That's true. It was in Miriam's generation. And if your Bibles are still open, I want you to turn there and see an important difference of why this is so dissatisfying and angering to God, as opposed to what happened before. Exodus 17, Exodus 17 and verse 6. Now again, situation very similar in these parents of this present generation. 
they're supposed to be going into the promised land, but there's not water, and so they need water. And God tells Moses what to do in this place. Exodus 17 and verse 6. God is speaking, and he says to Moses, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Now, the words go by fast in English, but they are absolutely critical in the original language that's there. When God says to Moses, I will stand before the rock, the verb, that little verb stand, is the verb for a servant standing in humility before his master. And God, of course, is not appearing in some human form. Here is the glory of the Lord settling upon the rock as God stands before his people in the position of a servant. Now, if Moses is to strike the rock, what must he strike first before he hits the rock? He has to strike God in order to bring the grace of the water out of the rock for the people. God is going to mediate by his own suffering, taking the blow for the sin of his people in order that they may know the grace of the water that he would give. The Apostle Paul knew it, right? In 1 Corinthians 10, he said that when Moses struck the rock, that rock was Christ. And he says that we drink from the same spiritual rock. Because God, in the person of Jesus Christ, allowed himself to in humility be struck, to be a mediator of the grace that we need, taking the penalty that was ours. For Moses, now in the next generation, having been told to speak to the rock, instead to strike the rock without God present and mediating before, is to indicate that somehow Moses is the mediator, as though he can bring the grace that the people need. Moses is not just a prophet of his own words, he is now a new priest of a substitute mediation, which is himself. And he does it. He does it with the staff that God himself has given for deliverance. You may remember back in Numbers 20 and verse 9, Moses took the staff from before the Lord. Where has Moses used the staff before? When he went before Pharaoh to to challenge Pharaoh's priests and gods, it was the staff that God had given him that showed the power and the authority of God over all creation, including the gods of the Egyptians. And when, when they had to cross the Red Sea, it was this staff that showed the power of God over all creation and all the military that Pharaoh could bring. The staff showed the kingly authority of God alone that was given to Moses to use to represent God. And now Moses, not only is he his own substitute prophet and substitute priest, he acts as he has the authority himself to do what only God has the authority to do, in which case he takes upon himself the mantle of Israel's king. Moses, by his actions, is presenting himself as substitute prophet, priest, and king. But who is the only prophet, priest, and king of God's people? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, when he speaks to Moses and says, you can't take these people into the promised land because you did not regard me as holy, is saying to Moses, Moses, only I am holy to deliver my people. It is my unique position. I am their savior. You can't take them into the promised land as though you are their savior. 
That would not be good for them. It would not be good for you. Only I, only I am the Savior to whom my people must look and on whom they must depend. Moses, you can't take them because I must take them. I must be their deliverer for I am the great shepherd. Now, some bad things have happened. And as you see kind of the penalty upon Moses, you begin to have a question as a a modern-day people of God. And the question is, where is the grace in all of this? I mean, the people do bad stuff. Moses does bad stuff. And Moses gets punished for it pretty severely. Where's the grace in all of that? Well, verse 11 may help you. Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, multiplying his sin. And water came out. How much water came out? Abundantly. Now, engineers in the crowd, help me here. 600,000 fighting men left Egypt. That's how they were numbered. Now, if there's 600,000 fighting men, people of warrior age, we assume most of them are married, which means not only there are 600,000 fighting men, they have wives. Now we're up to, what, 1.2 million people or so who are coming out of Egypt. And uh, let's, let's just assume they had, you know, one or two children. Hebrew households had many more children than that. But let's just say, you know, they've got a couple of children. Now, now how many people are there? Let's say 1.2 million, two children, two million. Now we're over 3 million people. And by the way, not everybody's of fighting age, so we've got a few grandmas and grandpas around too, right? All right? So now we're somewhere over 4 million people. And their cattle. Remember that statement over and over again, right? Now, I don't know what that meant, their livestock and cattle. You know, let's just assume that for every person, there might have been a sheep or a goat or a camel. You know, there would have been much more. But let's just... Now we're suddenly 8 million beings in the desert that got to have water. What, what do you need to survive in the desert with, you know, let's just say a gallon of water a day, okay? You would need more. But let's just say a gallon of water. Now, now we have 8 million gallons per day. Now, I, I kind of know what this looks like because I've seen the pictures, haven't you? You know? little bitty trickle comes out of the rock. There's a few sheep around. The kids are playing, you know. Remember the pictures in the Sunday? It's in all the Sunday school literature. You've seen it, right? Eight million gallons a day. 300,000 gallons an hour. 5,000 gallons a minute. A tanker truck a minute coming out of that rock. This is not a little trickle. This is a flood. And it is a flood of the mercy and the grace of God for a people who've been complaining and upset and rebellious and resistant. Is there any grace in this? Of course it is. It's God saying, though my people are faithless, I abide faithful. Though they fail me, I will not fail them. Though they have turned from me, I'll turn the spigot onto them. But you're still concerned aren't you? Because there's still someone for whom there seems to be so little grace. Who are you still concerned about? Moses. 
Maybe to help you think about that, I need to ask you a question. Who writes all this terrible stuff about Moses? Who rats on Moses? Moses. This is Moses' words. You know, it's the time of year that a lot of us will make the trek home, right? We'll go to parents or grandparents. For my family, particularly when our kids were younger and I have five other siblings, our trek was always to Memphis, Tennessee. And particularly when our kids were younger, lots of parents you'll understand, what you can't wait for when you're kind of at your parents' destination and you're seeing your siblings that you might not have seen since last year, the thing you want to do is to get the little kids in bed so you can finally talk to your brothers and sisters, right? You want the time. And, and what that means for my brothers and, and sister and I is, is, you know, we start, once the kids are in bed, we start the game of Monopoly, you know, the never-ending game. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and you just kind of go late into the night and you just play and talk and play and talk. Let me tell you something. If you play Monopoly late enough into the night, you just get a little giddy, you know. And, and what that means is, you know, that, that we... Adults, once kids now, we begin to exchange the tales of the misdeeds of our youth. Right? Now, my mother and father are kind of, you know, drowsing off, but this always gets them up again, you know. (laughs) My mom says, you did what? (laughs) But we can tell those stories on ourselves now. Why? Because we know it's okay now. When Moses can tell you this about himself, it's because he knows it's okay now. This same Moses, who by his actions is reminding God's people then and for all time, there is only one deliverer of God's people, and he is not, he is not out of the race of humanity such as is normal to us. God must make a way. And he will do it through a provision that is not of us. That message, God still chooses Moses to say. He becomes the great instrument of the proclamation of the deliverance that will ultimately find its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And the grace is not gone at all. How do I know that? Because when that Jesus Christ comes, do you remember late in his ministry, he will go up on a mountain one day, and a cloud will descend upon the mountain. And in that cloud, two figures will appear with Jesus. One is Elijah, and the other is Moses. As Moses makes it into the promised land by the grace of God to proclaim, as Elijah was saying, all the prophets proclaim this one. So Moses now is there. I was proclaiming him too. All the law was really about him. What do you learn in this passage of the grace of God? We learn ultimately that Moses, to be this great under-shepherd of the great shepherd, is not just a first intercessor, not just a first forgiver, nor even a first risker. Ultimately, he is a first repenter. He says to those people and to us, I too need the grace of God. For apart from him, There is no deliverance from my sin, but in him I am his forever. What shepherds do you want? What shepherds do you need, whether it be pastor or elder or teacher or parent? Ones who will intercede. 
ones who can forgive even when they're not the ones wrong. Ones who will risk saying what is true even when it puts them in the disfavor of their people. But ultimately what you need is one who says, I need the grace of God too. I desperately need the grace of God too. And in Jesus Christ, he gives it for me and for you. Father, would you so work this grace in our hearts that we who need to know the great shepherd would by the under-shepherds that you provide in your church know the grace of God. Give us such leadership, we pray, that we who need the grace over and over again might know it and fountain it from this place. In Jesus' name, amen.